In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. The Great Kanto Earthquake is referenced in the film many times during the Tokyo Earthquake sequence of scenes in the submersion of Japan. This earthquake in the movie is in fact referred to as the Second Great Kanto Earthquake. That part of the movie is a modern remake of the 1923 disaster. The Submersion of Japan was made and released in 1973, which was the 50th anniversary of the Kanto earthquake. September 1st, 1973 was the first day of shooting for the Submersion of Japan. The Great Kanto earthquake happened on September 1st, 1923 at 11.58 and 44 seconds a.m., so just about a minute before noon. It was a megathrust earthquake. The magnitude I've seen most commonly is 7.9, which is a major event for sure. It's called the Kanto earthquake because of the epicenter being very close to the Kanto plain, which is the plain south and east of the mountains in the Tokyo area and includes the area around Tokyo Bay. I'll get some figures out of the way and then move on to this relation that it has to the submersion of Japan. The population of Tokyo in 1923 was 2.5 million. There were 40 hours of fires, which caused the destruction of 63% of the homes in the city. Yokohama was 72% destroyed. The quake and fires killed 140,000 people, injured 100,000, made 3.25 million homeless, and there were 40,000 missing. 570,000 homes were destroyed. It killed 4% of the population of Japan, which that is absolutely massive. It caused mudslides, avalanches, a tsunami of 30 to 35 feet, floods, and at least five fire tornadoes and 130 major fires. There was a typhoon traveling past the region, which created winds that were unpredictable and which made the fires worse. Because it was almost noon, there was a lot of cooking going on for lunch, so that there were many fires when the buildings collapsed. The fires broke out almost immediately as a result. Over 35,000 people were guided... This is really bad. Over 35,000 people were guided to an open space called the Clothing Department of the Imperial Japanese Army. This was thought to be a safe location, but a fire tornado ripped through and killed almost everyone. It was the place the most people died. Only 2,000 survived. The chief of police, who told the people to go to this location, committed seppuku after all the people were killed. In the area of Yoshiwara, which was known for the brothels, it had a high number of deaths because some of the women were locked in where they worked because otherwise they would escape and not come back. There were 57 aftershocks. Three of the aftershocks were pretty big. Communication broke down almost immediately. A lot of the walkways were actually melting because it was so hot during the fires. Firestorms this big, like in the movie, radiate heat so far away from the actual fire. The fires and fire tornadoes also burned all of the oxygen out of the air, and the heat was so intense that you could be really far away and still be very seriously burned. 
Some people who jumped into water to avoid the flames drowned or were suffocated because there wasn't enough air. There were so many people that were seeking refuge that there were piles of people filling the waterways. The village of Nebukawa was completely destroyed in a mudslide, train station and all. The battlecruiser Amagi was at Yokosuka. It was being built at the time and was in dry dock. The earthquake damaged the hull of the vessel so seriously that it had to be sold for scrap. The earthquake broke water mains all over and it made fighting the fires impossible. Sanitation went downhill after the earthquake because of how destroyed the place was. There are around 1,500 earthquakes in Japan every year. What happened in the Kanto earthquake is comparable to what happened in San Francisco in 1906. It was also a 7.9 earthquake, it destroyed many buildings, and a conflagration ensued that burned down a very, very large part of the city. The differences are that there was only a 10 centimeter tall tsunami in San Francisco, and that there weren't any fire tornadoes reported, and that there weren't large-scale attacks on scapegoats blamed for things that they didn't do. Also, the San Francisco earthquake was not a mega-thrust earthquake because there was no subduction zone involved. This was the San Andreas Fault. It was a slip-strike earthquake. There is a high probability in the future that the East Bay will be struck by a major earthquake. Yokohama had many foreigners living and working there. There were also plenty of diplomats. Yokohama had its own Chinatown as well. Because of the way that Japan was back then especially, is that all of these sort of foreigners and diplomats and people who were different were kind of put into one place, and Yokohama was that place. Meanwhile, Tokyo was uh, very homogenous and also very, very conservative. Yokohama was where the, a lot of the trade with outside countries occurred, and the silk trade was a big business. In 1960, September 1st was made a holiday called Disaster Prevention Day. It is partially to commemorate this day in 1923 because this was such a significant historical event. Schools in Japan hold a moment of silence at 1158 in memory of this occasion. This was one of the most significant and nation-changing events that ever occurred in Japan. It is an inflection point where Japan became more nationalistic and the events that would happen in the empire's future were seemingly made sure more than ever from this point. The groundwork for the Empire of Japan's behavior toward the United States had already been laid. The Empire was already fortifying islands in Oceania to act as a barrier against outside attack. I addressed that issue in the episode before this, episode 53, on colonialism in Oceania. Those islands had been in Germany's possession until World War I was over. The Empire had colonized Korea in 1910. There was plenty of nationalistic sentiment in Tokyo, still quite a conservative city as I said, and it's still considered that today. Back then, the foreigners and the diversity were all concentrated in Yokohama. Japanese apprehensiveness towards outsiders was very strong in Tokyo. For that matter, the rest of Japan was like this as well. Suspicion of foreigners and non-Japanese was high, and Korea already had an independence movement and the Tokyo and Yokohama area had many spies trying to find out if anyone's plotting anything. This is about the overall political climate. 
When disasters happen, events can happen that are related to the overall political climate. Anti-foreign sentiment was probably very high, and when disasters happen, some people want to take advantage of the situation. They wanted to do this in order to further their own political power. After the earthquake was over, there were nearly two days of fires and disorder. Nationalists spread rumors about Koreans, saying that they were committing arson, that they were trying to overthrow the government, engaging in rebellion, engaging in sabotage, rioting, and looting, and poisoning wells. Well water was cloudy because of the earthquake, but rumors were spread about Koreans poisoning wells. Some newspapers printed these rumors, and some of the police and military police were involved in this action too. Groups of vigilantes went around lynching Koreans and sometimes Chinese and even non-Yamato Japanese. At least 6,000, possibly many more Koreans, were killed, and this wasn't just in areas affected by the fires. The authorities at large wanted to round up and protect Koreans, but the reality on the ground was that there were quite a few authority figures that were engaged in the killing of Koreans. This is one of those times in history that it got really ugly with xenophobia and panic going in tandem with each other. Almost 25,000 Koreans were taken into protective custody all around the country. With all of this societal collapse, quite a few Koreans were rounded up and killed. It was just total chaos and a total breakdown of order. After the earthquake was over, martial law was put into effect. The military police and the Imperial Japanese Army took advantage of the situation and liquidated people considered to be political enemies of the empire. Anarchists, communists, and socialists, as well as Chinese community leadership and Koreans who were considered leaders of the Koreans, were executed. The way they did this was they'd accuse that person of trying to take advantage of the circumstances during the disaster, but that is exactly what these people were doing themselves. Emperor Taisho and the Empress were not in Tokyo during this earthquake. They were out of town. The mob violence lasted three days, and it wasn't until panic died down and the government conveyed a strong enough message saying lay off the Koreans that this stopped happening. The disaster certainly didn't make the Japanese national spirit look very good. The earthquake and fires all helped to determine where Japan would go historically in the future. Many Japanese thought that the earthquake was about them being paid back for their Western consumerism and their extravagance, even their supposed giving in to immorality. So the democracy and the Roaring Twenties atmosphere that America was enjoying got cut short in Japan. Many Japanese got too introspective, saying the earthquake was punishment for them being self-centered and morally degenerate. This was what state Shinto had encouraged them to think. There was a correction in the national dialogue from democracy to imperialist rhetoric about how not to fall victim to the excesses of democracy. Kawasaki was another area hard hit in the Kanto earthquake. Currently, Kawasaki has a high population of Koreans. There were two anti-Korean demonstrations by nationalist groups recently that were planned for Kawasaki, and a new hate speech law has prevented one of those demonstrations from happening. So it seems that old habits die hard, and these overall sentiments in the national political dialogue and the political environment still exist today. The anti-foreign and anti-outsider sentiments are still shared by some. There's definitely not much of this anti-foreigner violence being shown in the submersion of Japan. 
However, there is a prevailing sentiment that the Japanese are now the outsiders themselves. They are losing their country, and now they have to beg to be saved. So the tables have turned. They are refugees themselves, and they have to go to other countries that they haven't necessarily been friends with over time. And so now those countries are holding all the cards. That puts many Japanese watching this movie in what I wouldn't doubt would be an uncomfortable position. They are watching a movie that challenges their thinking about outsiders, because in this story, they are the outsiders, with no place to call a home country. So they have to put up with other countries who decide their fate. They have to depend on countries like Australia. They have to give the Australian Prime Minister an artifact in order to try to gain favorable feeling from him. And then behind closed doors, the Prime Minister says the Japanese will use Australian resources for them to build their own country again. And that's turning the xenophobia on its head, because the concern right after the Kanto earthquake was that the Koreans were overthrowing the government and the Chinese were building their own country in Yokohama, and that they were going to bring all this foreign influence into Japan. In the Submersion of Japan story, the other countries are worried about Japanese people creating their own settlements, and that they will influence the countries that they're refugees in. So Japanese are the new outside influencers. In this story, the second Kanto earthquake and Japan's demise overall creates many refugees, and it kills a much higher number of people, and it foments anti-Japanese sentiment in the world by having to ask all these other countries to let them in. To the Japanese, it's about their survival as a people, but to the host countries, they're a complex question to be processed and then dealt with. They become a burden, and a political football in the future, I'm sure. The Japanese in this story have to face what the Koreans and other foreigners had to face in Japan 70 years ago. They must worry about their very survival in a potentially hostile new location away from their home country. That's astonishing the way this works. Like I said, this movie could be considered a horror movie, depending on who's watching it. The recovery effort was fast and unprecedented in size. The U.S. gave the most aid, and it was delivered by the Pacific Fleet. When the vessels came into the bay, the Japanese Coast Guard told the USS Stewart that Japan doesn't need their help. This aspect of the aftermath of the earthquake made no sense to me, and then obviously it did one second later. They had too much pride and didn't want to look like they couldn't handle things on their own. And they were also suspicious of us that they thought that we had some sort of ulterior motive or that we were trying to influence them from the outside with the aid. The authorities actually tried to stop the ships from landing, saying we don't need any food. The way the U.S. went around this was to compromise and leave the food on the docks for the Japanese authorities to then take possession of to distribute. That way, it wasn't Americans giving food and other aid to the victims of the disaster. There were also many donations from civil society organizations such as charities. The first time this phenomenon occurred was after the earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal in 1755. This connection between the U.S. and Japan, this outpouring of supplies, money, food, clothing, it was likely the best moment between the two countries before World War II. However, some Americans accused the Japanese of not being thankful for what was donated. 
But the thing is, the foundation of U.S.-Japan relations had many cracks of its own, and a true alliance between Japan and the U.S. would not happen until Japan genuinely democratized from the top down. Things would get much worse before they would get better, obviously. It wasn't this that made the disaster infamous. It was more about the killing of the Koreans and the steps further into totalitarianism that the Japanese military and government made. Things only got worse between the U.S. and Japan after the recovery effort. The 1920s are a pretty xenophobic time in the U.S. anyways, and there were a lot of immigration restrictions. As the Empire of Japan kept expanding, the more Americans objected to it. When the U.S. cut off a lot of oil, this caused Japan to decide to attack Pearl Harbor in an attempt to knock out the entire Pacific fleet. Relating this aspect with refusing aid after the Kanto earthquake to the submersion of Japan is rather interesting. After the 23 earthquake, the authorities were too proud and mistrustful to want to accept aid, but in the submersion of Japan they have no choice but to bow down on their knees and beg other countries to take refugees from their sinking country. So they have to swallow their collective pride and their individual pride, and then they have to ask for help from countries that they don't exactly have great relations with. After the earthquakes and the fires were over, a previous prime minister, Count Ganohyoe Yamamoto, became prime minister. He had been an admiral in the Imperial Japanese Navy. He was prime minister from 1913 to 1914. He was a supporter of democracy and was not on the right endpoint of the political spectrum. After the earthquake, the government recalled him and made him prime minister and installed an earthquake cabinet. The cabinet and Yamamoto were tasked with reconstruction of the city and restoration of public services. He served for 11 months or so as prime minister. One thing the government and the people considered doing was moving the capital of Japan out of Tokyo and back to Kyoto, where it had been for a long time before. This idea was ruled out. But was it a good idea? Like, was that prudent? I do see merit in this kind of consideration. But humans aren't very good at going to places that are less free of disasters. Tokyo is obviously a good place to build a city, On you know, if you're just looking at the map. It's a plain with a bay and easy access to the Pacific. New Orleans is at the mouth of a river, and at the south end of a large lake next to a gulf. Chicago is at the mouth of a river next to a lake, on one of the biggest watersheds in North America. But there aren't any disasters that can take out a whole city like Chicago. At least natural disasters. Tokyo can be hit by so many things. Volcanoes, earthquakes, typhoons, floods, tsunami. But when these kind of disasters occur, the choice is nearly always to rebuild the city and just try harder next time. If you're in Japan, there are only so many places you can go, and there are a lot of places in Japan still prone to all kinds of disasters. But nature is hard to avoid, and there aren't many places that will never be affected by a calamity of some sort. There's also the fact that some would look at moving the capital back to Kyoto as some kind of surrender, surrendering to nature. Abandoning a whole city is even more of a kind of surrender. Yamamoto's time in office was cut short by the event referred to as the Toronomon Incident. The incident reminds me of when U.S. President William McKinley was assassinated by a man who had just heard a speech by an anarchist. On December 27, 1923, a communist attempted to assassinate Crown Prince Regent Hirohito, who is now known 
as Emperor Showa. The crown prince regent was in his carriage, and a man by the name of Daisuke Nanba shot at the carriage, but missed. The bullet did hit a chamberlain who survived. The carriage was en route to the Diet Building for a ceremony where Hirohito would have opened the newest legislative session of the Diet. Why did the cabinet resign, then? They took the blame for the security lapse that easily could have led to the unthinkable. Obviously, there's a monumental level of shame generated by this, so the cabinet and some other officials involved resigned. This was the first of three separate assassination plots and or attempts against Hirohito. To further illustrate the level of shame involved with this, Namba's family changed their family name and went into self-exile in the Dutch East Indies to escape the shame. The government passed a public security preservation law in 1925 because of the state wanting to not tolerate dissent from communists or a whole lot of other people. These kinds of laws would be in effect until the end of the war when Japan was reintroduced to democracy by the United States. This redemocratization was followed by a Cold War configuration towards conservatism. What's interesting is that the Prime Minister's name in the submersion of Japan is Yamamoto. This couldn't be a coincidence. The name is likely an homage to him. Perhaps it's an homage to his values and for his work regarding the reconstruction of Tokyo. The task was to rebuild Tokyo so that this doesn't happen again in the next earthquake. The next earthquake in Tokyo is referred to as X-Day in Japan. This is a 7.0 or higher earthquake that is expected in Japan in the near future. There is supposedly a 70% chance that a 7.0 earthquake or higher will hit Tokyo before 2050. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government put out a 338-page manual regarding this event and what to do. So Tokyo gets a 338-page booklet, and Los Angeles residents gets an app that warns you when the earthquake is about to hit that might work or might not work. Good luck. If and when the next Tokyo earthquake happens, the emergency services will be overwhelmed. People might have to do a lot of walking to get places, and it will be a long recovery. Tokyo is, however, as ready as it will get for this event. More than 300,000 buildings could be destroyed in such an event. There are still parts of Tokyo where there are houses built from wood and other fire-catching materials. These neighborhoods could be hard hit if fires start there. Water, electricity, and transportation could be knocked out, leaving millions either stuck in the city or evacuating from the city. The Kobe earthquake in 1995 destroyed 400,000 buildings, so a bad earthquake in the Tokyo area could definitely do at least that much damage. The greater Tokyo area consists of a population of 38 million people, and it is the most populous city in the world. The Kanto Plain is vulnerable to devastation by earthquakes because the flat land makes it easy for the energy from the quake to roll right through it. There's very little to stop it. So, it wasn't just in 1945 that Tokyo got turned into hell on Earth. It was turned into hell on Earth in 1923 as well. This has been a rather tough subject to research from an emotional direction because it was such a horrific event and because it changed Japan for the worse long term. Getting to some economic figures of note, GDP growth in 1973 was 8.0%, which was very high, 
I'd like to thank John LeMay for being on this episode. He was so much help telling us about this movie and all the cool background about it. Thanks again, John, for coming on the show. This episode is dedicated to the great actor Keiju Kobayashi, who played the character of Dr. Tadokoro. He's probably best known for his role as Prime Minister Mitamura in 1984's The Return of Godzilla. He passed away in 2010. He has at least 221 credits for various roles and a very prolific actor in Japan. I look forward to seeing him in more movies. The next episode of this podcast will be 1974's The Prophecies of Nostradamus. It'll be a special treat to cover this amazing movie. It was self-banned by Toho because it was that edgy and controversial. It technically is a rare movie, but try to see the original Japanese uncut version if you can, so that we can fully appreciate this wild and crazy tokusatsu experience. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.